0: We're going to begin at verse 18 tonight. But Luke chapter 9 begins with Jesus delegating authority and and ministry responsibility to the disciples. And he sent them out to do the work of preaching and to meet people's needs in supernatural ways uh, healing, casting out demons. But again, the emphasis, as it was in the individual ministry of Jesus, was on teaching, was on preaching. But he sent them out to do the work. Uh, that he had done just in his own ministry. Now he spread it out and delegated it. Well, when they came back from that experience, they were super excited. But I have a feeling not only were they excited, but they felt spent. They felt kind of worn out from that great feeling that you get when you really spend yourself in the work of the Lord, and they felt like they needed to be refreshed. So Jesus took them away to a somewhat solitary place, just for a little rest, just for a little personal time with Jesus, maybe a debriefing from their short-term mission trip, whatever you want to call it. They went aside with Jesus for this particular time. But what happened? No sooner did they make the effort to get away and to spend that time all by themselves with Jesus, the crowds came upon them, and they were needy crowds who wanted to hear Jesus teach, who wanted to be healed by the touch of his hand, that wanted something from Jesus. And Jesus ministered to the multitude, and then he fed them, thousands of them, in this miraculous event where Jesus fed the multitude miraculously. Now, after that, Jesus turns his attention back to his disciples because he's thinking about the disciples, but he's also thinking about the crowd, the multitude that he just ministered to. And that sort of sets the context of verse 18 where we read, And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Notice this, as Luke loves to set the context in so many cases, in verse 18, he makes it clear that this happened while Jesus was praying. That's one of the precious things about the gospel of Luke. He points out, more than any other gospel writer, the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus was a man of prayer. And as he was praying, all by himself, The disciples came and joined him. And I don't know exactly what that means where it says they joined him. I don't know if they joined into the prayer that Jesus was praying and they had a little bit of a prayer meeting right there. I don't know if they sort of interrupted his prayer. And when they came, Jesus stopped his prayer and asked the disciples what was going on. And then he asked his disciples after the prayer time was over, he asked them this question, who do the crowds say that I am? You men, you just got done handing out, you know, uh, fish and bread to 5,000 plus people. You hear the murmur of the crowd. You hear the voice of what they're saying. What's the buzz? What do people say about me out there? Now, please, nobody should think for a moment that Jesus asks this question out of some sense of insecurity. It's not, oh, guys, do they like me? I don't know. Am I well liked enough? How am I polling in the focus groups or something like that? It's nothing to do with that. No, Jesus's mentality, his approach is something completely different at all. He's asking the question about the crowds merely as a setup for a greater question that's going to come in just a few verses. But first, let's just deal with the response from the crowds. The disciples report, well, listen, Jesus, this is what we hear people say about you. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Now, I think that's fascinating. I think it's fascinating how people who were so close to Jesus, I mean, they were right there. They ate bread that he had miraculously provided. They go, hey, that's John the Baptist. Isn't it fascinating to you how kind of ignorant that is? That that they didn't know very much about Jesus at all if they thought he was John the Baptist. They didn't know that for a substantial period of time, both Jesus and John the Baptist ministered at the same time. They didn't know that as wonderful and as impressive as John the Baptist's ministry was, it was of a completely different character in Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist didn't do anything like heal people. John the Baptist didn't do anything like the teaching ministry that Jesus did. John the Baptist didn't do anything like the miraculous and, and uh, bread-multiplying ministry that Jesus did. The character of their ministries was completely different. They were both, let's give them this, they were both impressive men from God, right? But that's pretty much where the similarities end. They both preach repentance. That's true as well. But after that, there's not much similarity. Some said John the Baptist. Other people said Elijah. Well, Elijah is actually sort of a rational answer because the Old Testament promised that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And they're thinking kind of this. This guy, Jesus, is pretty spectacular, but maybe there's somebody even greater coming after him. And, and I'm just going to guess I know what the crowds were thinking. The crowds were thinking that the greater one that would come after Jesus would be the one who would do what the crowds wanted him to do. And that was wipe out the Romans and restore Israel to a place of political independence and prominence. They were hoping that maybe Jesus was just the advance man for somebody else. Or, or they say one of the old prophets that has risen again. So the people are thinking... What kind of man is this Jesus? But notice this. In verse 20, Jesus turns the question back. He say, let's forget about the crowds for a moment. He asked his own disciples. And don't you think this is kind of a curious question for Jesus to ask his disciples? He asked them, who do you say that I am? Now, please remember, let's, I can't give you exactly. Maybe I should have done my study a little bit better here tonight. I can't tell you at what point this is in Jesus' ministry. I'm going to guess it's about at the two-year point. It's just a guess, but let's just say it's at the two-year point. You have pretty much lived and eaten with and, and slept in the same camp. You've know, you were to, you've been together with a guy for two years, and then, you, who do you think I am? I mean, Jesus, what do you mean? We, we follow you around. We think you're a very impressive man. We wouldn't be following you out unless, you think we're, unless we thought you were an impressive man. But that wasn't enough. Jesus asked them this critical question. And might I say this question was so important because they had to explain to Jesus, who do you think he really is? Now, the first thing I want you to understand, Jesus assumed that his disciples would have a different opinion of him than the crowd's that the crowds would think one way about Jesus. Oh, do you think they're John the Baptist? Oh, I think they're Elijah. Jesus didn't say for a minute, well, you guys agree, don't you? No, Jesus figured these men, they know me. These men have heard me teach. These men have seen me up close. They're going to have a different opinion about me than just the crowds do. And by the way, I hope that's true of you. I, I hope you just don't take the popular viewpoint about who Jesus is. I I hope you're willing to be distinguished, that the whole world might think that Jesus is this or that. But you're going to be faithful to what the Bible says about him. And you're not going to be afraid to distinguish yourself from what the crowds say about Jesus. Say, no, I know who Jesus is. Forget about what the crowds say. And Jesus phrased the question because this is a question that's placed before everybody who hears of Jesus. And by the way, this is what you need to understand about this question. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's you who are held in judgment by this question. It's not really a question about Jesus. It's a question about you. Who do you say that Jesus is? The emphasis is on you, not on Jesus. It's kind of like somebody going to... um, You know, Florence, Italy, and seeing Michelangelo's famous statue of David. It's a spectacular statue. You just look at it, your mind's blown. It's so big. It's so proportional. It's so perfect. You just kind of have your mind blown looking at the statue. And you say, you know, I I don't think that that guy was a very good artist at all. Now, when you say that, you're not saying anything about Michelangelo. What you're saying is a lot about yourself. You stink as an art critic, is what you're saying. You don't know anything about art. You don't know anything about beauty. Because the work of art stands by itself. It has its own credentials. There it is. And what you say about Jesus says a lot more about you than it ever does about Jesus. I'd say this, we, we answer this question every day, don't we? The way we live reflects what we believe about Jesus. Well, what was Peter's response? Look at it right there in verse 20. He says, I know who you are. You are the Christ of God. This is beautiful. Peter knew Jesus far better than any of the multitudes, far better than the crowds. He says, listen, you're the Christ. Now, do we understand the meaning of that word Christ? Christ is merely the Greek way of saying Messiah. If we were speaking in a Hebrew context, he would say You are the Messiah of God. But since he's speaking in a Greek context, you are the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. You're the one promised of the Old Testament. You're the deliverer. You're the redeemer. Jesus, you are the one. You're the one that was prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 3, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. You're the one uh, that comes from Abraham, would be the blessing that goes throughout the whole world. You're the, the, the one that comes from David, on and on and on. You are the Christ, the Messiah. You, you would think right there, okay, now we know who Jesus is. You know, the, the, the camera fades out, the violin music plays, and it's over. I mean, this is amazing that Peter understood it. It's like the disciples are getting it. You don't think I'm just a prophet. You don't think I'm just a teacher. You don't think I'm just a, a great rabbi. You don't think I'm just a miracle worker. You, don't think, in it, you think I am the one, the Messiah. What's fascinating about that? Look at the next two verses. And he strictly warned and commanded them not to tell this. To, to commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, "The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day." I don't know. We, we've got to figure out a way to do this. We've got to figure out a way to wipe your memory clean of what you know about the Bible so that you can come here and be amazed by it all over again. That you would appreciate fully just how weird it is that at this this pivotal moment where Peter gets the ultimate right answer, you know, he's the kid putting up his hand in the class. Ooh, ooh, call on me, teacher. I know, I know, I know. And it's the right answer You are the Christ of God. It's like all the alarm bells go off. Yes, that's it. That's what we've been waiting to hear all the time. And Jesus immediately says in a low voice, okay, don't tell anybody. What do you mean don't tell? I thought that was the whole purpose. What good is it you being the Messiah if you can't tell anybody about it? And then he says what? And then he says, okay, guys, this is it. Not only do I not want you to tell anybody, you got to keep it a secret. Why? Because I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and die. Can you just appreciate for a moment how utterly bizarre that must have sounded in the ears of the disciples? I imagine them blinking and looking at one. Of, did, did you hear him say, what I just heard him say? No, he didn't say that. Are you kidding me? First, don't tell anybody. What is that? I mean, obviously, Jesus was pleased that the disciples were coming to the understanding of who he was in truth, but he didn't want his identity popularly known until the right time. Why? Because it was absolutely essential that he had to suffer. Jesus was not going to allow himself to be carried to some popular acclaim on a wave of popularity from the crowds who loved him and adored him as the Messiah. No, Jesus was going to carefully manage his popularity, his fame, so that it would not crest before the time. You know, Jesus was so wise about, boy, this would be a fascinating study to do. Sometimes I, sometimes I think while I'm teaching, and I'm thinking right now, you don't know how rare that is. Any, anybody who teaches the Bible, just you know how rare that is. No, I'm just saying, wouldn't that be a great study to see how Jesus handled fame and celebrity. And right here, he says, no, no. Hands off. Don't spread that abroad. No, you guys are absolutely right. But listen, it's not the right time. Instead, he says, verse 22, you have to understand the son of man, must suffer many things. What would he suffer? Well, he'd be rejected, he'd be killed, and he'd be raised the third days. That isn't what the disciples expected. That's not what they signed on for. You know, we just had a big presidential campaign in our country, and I know people are sick of it and they don't want to hear much about it. It seemed like it was such a long time ago and all this excitement about it and such, but but it's something like this analogy. It's like you say, Okay, we're finally on the campaign staff of the winning candidate. And he reveals, yes, I'm the winning candidate. We're going to go all the way to Jerusalem. And once we get to Jerusalem, they're going to reject me and I'm going to uh, be killed. Who wants to sign on and work for that candidate? That that seems like a losing proposition, doesn't it? But she says, no, this is what you have to understand. And he says, verse 22, very demonstratively, the son of man must suffer many things. It's a must. Don't say, guys, this is a dicey proposition. There's a lot of opposition against me. Maybe it'll go bad. I hope it goes good. No, he says, no, I'm telling you how it has to happen. I must suffer these things. There's no two ways about it. This is appointed unto me. I must and and I also must be raised the third day. Don't miss that. It was just as necessary for him to suffer as it was for him to be raised from the dead. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, and again, just just try to forget that you've heard this before. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I imagine Jesus' disciples being absolutely dumbfounded when he said this. Okay, first of all, You ask us, who do the crowd say you are? And we tell you, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Then you ask us, who do we think you are? And and Peter comes up with the right answer. No, Jesus, I know who you are. You are the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. You are the chosen one. And and Peter gets the answer right. But then Jesus tells him not to tell anybody. Then he tells us he's going to suffer and die. And now he says that we have to suffer and die also. Jesus... Why didn't you tell us this at the very beginning when we followed you? Please understand. He said to them all, verse 23 says, if you want to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. When Jesus spoke those words, everybody knew exactly what Jesus meant. In a Roman world, Before a man died on a cross, he carried a cross. Let me put it to you this way. Before they hung a man on a cross, they hung a cross on him. And they made him carry that cross. And carrying a cross always led to one thing, to dying on a cross. Have you heard about these guys from time to time? They come up every once in a while. I don't know if you've ever seen one come through Santa Barbara. I don't know. Probably at some time or another it's happened. Guys who have crosses that they carry around. One guy had a famous cross with a little wheel at the bottom of it. And that was kind of his thing. And he would use it for evangelism. And he'd walk from city to city. It's just like he'd walk up and down State Street. I don't know if it was literally on State Street, but in some community. Take a cross and walk it around with it and use it to talk to people about Jesus. Let me tell you something. I guess whatever, if that's what you want to do, and it gives you an excuse to talk to people about like Jesus, whatever. But I will say that that's nothing about what Jesus spoke about here. Because in the Roman world, you carried a cross for one reason: because you were being led to death. The original hearers of Jesus didn't need this explained to them. Everybody knew what it was to be crucified. Everybody knew that the cross was one thing. It was an unrelenting instrument of torture, death and humiliation. Let me say those things again. Torture, death, and humiliation. That's what the cross was all about. And if someone took up your cross, you never came back. It was a one-way journey. You never walked away from the place of crucifixion with a cross. You only walked towards it. What else is bizarre about this? If you look at the phrasing that Jesus there, he says, if any man Takes up his cross. If you take, you must take up your cross. In the Roman world, nobody, at least in the sense that Jesus spoke, took up a cross. You just go, hey, I'll carry that. You know how crosses were distributed in the Roman world? They were forced upon men going to be executed. You never voluntarily chose the cross, it was forced upon you. And Jesus says, No, no, no. In my kingdom, you have to choose this cross. You have to embrace it and say, yes, this is going to be something that I choose. I am going to take it up. Now, I, I know what you're kind of thinking. Thinking, OK, this swimming, humiliation, death, torture. What is this all about? Jesus, what do you mean? Well, he gives us a clue here in verse 23. Notice what he says there. He makes two equivalent statements. He says, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily. Jesus is making an equivalency, sort of a parallel between those two ideas. To deny yourself is something like taking up your cross daily. The the two phrases express, at least in this context, somewhat of the same idea. You see, the cross wasn't about self-promotion. The cross wasn't about self-affirmation. The person who carried a cross knew they could not save themselves. I am destined for death. That's what you knew, carrying a cross. I don't mean to sound flippant about it, but if you were a newspaper reporter and could walk up to a man in the Roman world carrying a cross to the place of execution, excuse me for sounding flippant, but if you interviewed him as a reporter, and said, well, what do the next 12 hours look like for you? I mean, there's one answer, death. I'm going to die. I have no future. My future is completely out of my hands. It's been overwhelmed by a will that's been impressed upon me. And Jesus says, no, no, this is why I want you you to choose to live that way by denying yourself. To live, if you could say, as a God-centered person, as an others-centered person, and then only finally that after that, a self-centered person. Think of that very simple way to phrase it. God, others, self. How many of us practically live our lives exactly flip that around? Self, others, God. Jesus said, no, you've got to flip that around. And doing that in some way fulfills this idea of taking up your cross. Now, by the way, daily. Verse 23 says daily. This shows that Jesus was not saying, and just so everybody's clear on this, Nobody should think for a moment that Jesus said, okay, well, I guess I've got to go to heaven. I've got to literally die on a cross. No. You cannot die on a cross daily. That's a one-time proposition. Daily shows that Jesus is speaking in a spiritual sense here. He, he, no one could be crucified literally every day, but daily you can have the same heart, the same attitude that Jesus had. Ladies and gentlemen, you could say this is discipleship at its very simplest. Jesus carried a cross. You should have the same mentality. Jesus completely abandoned himself to the will of the Father in his life. You and I should do the same. Now, you could almost imagine Jesus looking at his disciples, and as he makes this radical statement, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. You could almost picture the disciples going, what? Why? Why, Jesus? So he's going to explain. Verse 24. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Notice this first in verse 24. I'll explain to you why you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and die daily. Verse 24, because whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We must follow Jesus because it's the only way that we'll ever find life. And ladies and gentlemen, I know how paradoxical it sounds. I know that it's a contradiction, how it's counterintuitive, but here it is. You will never live until you walk to your death with Jesus. That's where you're really going to find life. That's the idea. You can't gain resurrection life without first walking to your death with Jesus and having that mentality every day. Let me assure you something here. There's something beautiful in here, many beautiful things. But I'll point out one. This is a strong and a sure promise of the afterlife. If this life is all there is, and there is no life after that, then what Jesus says here makes no sense whatsoever. But if there is, then there is a great reward for either dying as a martyr or living as a martyr. Jesus said, you're like a seed. You don't lose the seed when you plant it, when you bury it. No, you set it free to be what it was always intended to be, a glorious plant of some kind. That's why Jesus can say there in verse 25, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? You you see, you have to say, no, I'm willing to give it up so that I can be with Jesus. Even if it means losing everything, if I gain him, that's enough. I think it's fascinating that Jesus had the very opportunity to gain the whole world by bowing down his knee to Satan and worship, but he refused it, and he obeyed God instead. You know what's amazing about this? And I know Jesus doesn't say this in the text directly, but I'll just make an observation. The people that you know in your life who live with this mentality, they're the happiest people you know. Isn't that amazing? Don't you think they should be morbid or weird? But they're not. I'm not saying there aren't some morbid and weird people out there, but they're not the ones who really get this. The ones who really get this say, my life is abandoned to Jesus. Jesus, I'm going to order it your way. God, others, self, in that order. And you know what fills their life? Something that we call resurrection life, resurrection power. Here's the problem. You and I, we want resurrection life without dying first. It doesn't work that way. Resurrection life comes to people who say, yes, Jesus, I will live my life associated with your death on the cross. Why? So that I can live this resurrection life. Then in verse 26, Jesus said something that, I don't know, it's just something I love about the Bible. I can read something, you know, I don't know how many times before, and then read again. It just comes out, wow. Look at this in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed. When he comes in his own glory. It isn't easy to walk to your death with Jesus. It means that you have to associate yourself with somebody who was despised, somebody who was rejected. But if we're ashamed of him. He's going to be ashamed of us. I want you to notice something. This is a radical call to personal allegiance to Jesus. He wanted to know. And this is amazing. Jesus looks you in the eye and he says, are you going to be ashamed of me? That's what Jesus says. Now, you know what's weird about this? Nobody else in the Bible ever spoke like that. Did King David ever speak like that? Did Moses? Did Elijah? Did Daniel? They didn't call for that kind of personal loyalty. They pointed people to the Lord God. But Jesus said, no, because I am God, you can't be ashamed of me. This is a call to worship, actually. Then I think of it, ashamed of him. Something that bothers me in this. I can understand how somebody in the first century, at the time of Jesus himself, might be ashamed of him. Why? Well, he was a man of controversy. There were always a lot of people opposing him. He died a very shameful death. The official verdict on him was that he was a criminal deserving of death. Some of his followers were disputable people. Okay, I get all that. All right. You know what I can't understand? I don't get at all how anybody's ashamed of him today. Here's Jesus risen and exalted. Here's Jesus reigning at the right hand of God, the father on high. Here's Jesus, the leading figure of all humanity for the last 2000 years, Nobody has shaped civilization like Jesus. Nobody has given hot, hot life and, and transformation to people and hope like Jesus has. I don't get why anybody's ashamed of him today. I can't explain it. What possibly could anybody be ashamed of? Yet some are. You know, Ashamed means this. You don't want to be seen with him in public. Has there been a person like that you've been ashamed of? I don't, know, I, I don't know if, if you had a, you know, a, a younger sibling that you were ashamed to be seen in public with. Me, I think I was the younger sibling that they were ashamed to be in public with. But I don't know if you ever had that dynamic or something like that in your life. I don't want to see people around me with them. Ashamed also means that you don't want to talk about them. Ashamed means that you avoid him whenever it's possible. Some people are ashamed because of fear. Some people are ashamed because of social pressure. Some people are ashamed because of intellectual or maybe cultural pride. But objectively considered, that shame is a strange phenomenon. Now, here's how I picture it in my mind, that Jesus looks again at his disciples, and he sees they're confused. They're having a hard time with this. It's like, Jesus, you've really dropped a bomb on us. So this is why he says in verse 27, But I tell you truly, there's some standing here who should not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Guys, I don't want you to be overwhelmed by the death aspect of this. The the point of this isn't death. The point of this isn't crosses. The point of this isn't the denial of self. No, those are means to an end. The, the point of it all is God's glory shed abroad in your life. And there's some people right here, you're, you're not going to see the end of it until you see the glory of God. And you know what It happened right now in the next few verses. Look at it here, verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after those sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up with them on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Oh, again, I wish we could just read this with brand new eyes and realize this is really weird. Okay, guys, let's get away. All of you, no, just some of you. You, uh, Peter, James, John, you guys come with me. I know we often think we have, the, ooh, these were the intimates. These were the special ones among the group. Well, I don't know. The, what, what do you do if a teacher has a class and the teacher says, mm, Billy, Johnny, Joe, you guys come with me. I, you stay close here. I got to go. It's like these are the kids you got to keep an eye on or they're going to cause trouble. It may very well have been that dynamic going on. Whatever the reason, he goes, okay, you guys come with me. Not everybody, just you guys. Peter, John, and James, let's go up to the mountain and pray. And again, Luke emphasizes prayer. So he says that as he prayed, Jesus was transformed right in front of the eyes of the disciples. It says the appearance of his face was altered. This is what we call the transfiguration. His face was changed in appearance. It became white and glistening. It's as if these radiating beams came out from the face of Jesus. Something changed in his actual physical appearance, and it seemed to stay that way for some substantial period of time. I think that this was for a very important reason. Jesus just told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. I'm going to be crucified. It's the worst kind of death that a person could imagine in that day. And now he says, listen, but it doesn't mean I've lost an ounce of my glory. Look at it. See it. I'm still the Christ of God. This is the guy you've always been waiting for. This is the guy you wanted to be all the time. It's real. It's who I really am. It could have given them confidence. This Jesus, he knows what he's doing. He hasn't lost any of his glory. And then verse 30. Okay, again. Could you just experience the weirdness of this all over again with me? Verse 30. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke just lays it out so matter-of-factly. Oh, yeah, climb up on a mountain just with three of the disciples. Jesus suddenly gets transformed, radiating to glory. You turn around, and there's two guys talking with him. Oh, it's Moses and Elijah. Well, that happens every day, doesn't it? It's Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Two men talked with him. Jesus was not alone in this display of glory. These two men, whom they immediately recognized as Moses and Elijah. Now, by the way, I think this is fascinating. I don't think that they were wearing t-shirts that said Moses and Elijah. I think they just looked at him. And can we agree they had never seen Moses and Elijah before? Yet they instantly knew, hey, that's Moses and that's Elijah. No name tags. No no T-shirts. How did they know? Look, I think this is going to be one of the glories of heaven, that you're just instantly going to know who everybody is. Think about how great that is. You're never going to bump into somebody in heaven and go, oh, what's their name, their name, their name? <laughs> I, I can't pass this one up. A lady asked Spurgeon, hey, are we going to know each other in heaven? Spurgeon laughed, put his hand on the lady's shoulder and said, my dear woman, you're not going to be stupider in heaven than you are on earth. <laughs> well, that, that's just, of course. But you go back to this. They knew his, it's Moses and Elijah. And so there, it's those two guys. And what did they do? They talked with him. Oh, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall of that conversation? There, that Moses just chatted up with Jesus. You know, you think about this before Jesus came to earth incarnate, he had a relationship with Moses and Elijah in heaven. So they they were old friends. They're talking it up. They're just chatting back and forth. By the way, I just loved something that F.B. Meyer said about this. He says that maybe this is an example of what it might have been like if Adam had never sinned. People just would have been in glory and just enjoying each other's company. Here would have been just just this. Moses and Elijah and Jesus chatted up with Jesus. And there they are. They're there with... Again, it's fascinating. Why Moses and Elijah? Why not Daniel? Why not Joseph? Why not Abraham? Why not David? Why not Enoch? Why why those two? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. Let me just give you the, the most prominent reasons. Number one... They represent the law and the prophets. It's sort of being, it's like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. You know, the the two, you know, biggest guys right there. They're there, those two great men talking it up with Jesus. That's one sense. The other sense is this. Both of them had, I don't know how you say it, weird circumstance deaths where their bodies were never discovered on earth. That's kind of too much to get into right now, but I think that's another reason. Well, And I'll throw a third reason on. Both of them seem to have a genuine future in God's prophetic plan. And here, in some sense, they're talking about it. Verse 31, they spoke of the decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem and and all the things they could have discussed. This is what they talked about. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. Actually, it's fascinating. In the original Greek where it says his decease, it's the ancient Greek word for exodus. They were discussing the exodus that he was going to have at Jerusalem, speaking of his death. And I wonder how the conversation went. I almost imagine it being something like this. Moses and Elijah asked Jesus, are you really going to do it? And Jesus said, yes, I'm going to do it. Moses said, are you sure you can go through with this? Yes, I can do it. Elijah, do, do you, Jesus, are you certain? Yes, I can do it. My father will sustain me. I will do this. All right, now what's happening with the disciples all along this? Look at this, verse 32. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Well, how could you sleep through this? But they did. Now, there are people who think that Jesus might have been praying with these guys all through the night. And maybe that's why they slept. I don't know. Maybe there were some circumstances like this. But doesn't it strike you as strange that somebody can have the glory of God in their midst and still be asleep? Listen, I think that that's true. Of course, it's true physically. But even more importantly, it's true spiritually. I I imagine if they would have slept right through all of it and walked down and said, well, there was nothing there. No, it was there. You just slept through it. And that can happen spiritually as well as any other way. But then notice this. I love this in verse 32. When they were fully awake, they saw his glory. Friends, that should be our prayer. Lord, wake me up. Wake me up fully so that I can see your glory. I wonder how often the glory of God is manifest in some way around us, but we just miss it because we're asleep in some way. And by the way, I like this detail that he adds in verse 2, verse 32, I should say. He says, the two men who stood with him. In my mind, I always pictured them floating in the air, right? No, they weren't floating. They're standing right there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're standing and talking. Right, what happens next? Let's conclude our section here, verse 33. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, It's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them as they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Now notice this. Moses and Elijah begin to leave. Verse 33 says, as they were parting from him. Moses and Elijah are beginning to leave, and Peter's going, man, this is great. We missed out on so much of it. We've been sleeping. No, don't go. Don't go. We'll build three tabernacles that you can all stay right here, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I wonder if Peter wasn't thinking something like this. He goes, man, this is perfect. It should always be this way. Jesus, forget about this business of suffering and dying and going to Jerusalem. Let's stay right here where you're shining out in your glory. This is way better. Maybe something like that is at work. But even as they do that, what is it? A cloud comes and overshadows them. This cloud of Shekinah glory, they begin to see it. They begin to sense it. They're fearful because of it. By the way, I'll notice this. This didn't happen in a dream. It happened when they were wide awake. I like what Spurgeon says of this. He says, we have not dreamt our religion. It has not come to us as a vision of the night. But when we were fully awake, we saw Christ's glory. So what happens with this? Well, our last two verses, verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. God the Father spoke audibly from heaven and pointed out, Peter, apostles, don't you ever confuse Moses, Elijah, and Jesus again. Don't ever think of building three tabernacles. Don't ever you think that we should stay here and not go to Jerusalem. You listen to my son. Hear him. This is my beloved son. Now, Peter might not have known what he heard, excuse me, what he was saying, but he knew what he heard from heaven. Peter might not have known what he said, but he knew what he saw when he saw the cloud of glory. And Jesus says, no, keep it quiet. That's what they did. They told no one in those days the things that they had seen. They kept it quiet here. Later on, they wouldn't shut up about it. Peter speaks about it very powerfully in 2 Peter chapter 1. John speaks about it very powerfully in the Gospel of John chapter 1. They saw this and it made a lasting impression on them. But, but, please notice this as much as this experience was. It in itself did not change the disciples as much as being born again changed them. If anybody walks out of here saying, oh, I wish I had that kind of experience to see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, I don't blame you for wanting the experience, but don't think for a moment that that will transform your life more than being born again by God's spirit will. No, what really transformed the lives of these disciples was going to come later. Not at this point. We want to be fully awake, seeing and experiencing the glory of God. But it means now, now we let the Holy Spirit do his work in us and among us. Let's pray to that end and then we'll take some questions. Father, thank you, Lord. We almost feel like we could be right there, Jesus, seeing you in your glory, seeing you do your thing in grace and majesty, seeing you overshadowed by this cloud. But Lord, we don't want to miss it because we're asleep. I pray, God, that you'd speak to those, Lord, maybe, maybe spiritually they're just exhausted and they think that the, the solution for their exhaustion is to find sleep spiritually. No, Lord. Wake them up, give them rest, but Lord, make them fully awake and help us, Lord, to see your glory. Lord, we, as you guide us to We'll deny ourselves. we'll take up our cross, we'll follow you. But we want to see and experience your glory in the midst of it. Put those things together in our life, Lord, and we'll, we'll know that it's truly a work from you. Thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.